0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. There are some things everyone knows about Protestants. They hate tradition. They're suspicious of any doctrine or practice that can't be anchored to a verse. They're fractious and factious, each their own Luther, unwilling to budge from their convictions unless convinced by Scripture and sound reason but sometimes what everyone knows isn't so or needn't be so in their book reformed catholicity michael allen and scott swain argue that these stereotypes aren't entirely accurate of protestants in the past and they need not be true of protestants in the present instead reformed catholicity presents a vision both uniquely reformed and broadly catholic Embracing the Worth of Spirit-Authorized Church Teaching and Dogmatic Tradition in the Church's Mission of Understanding and Obeying Their Lord Through His Word. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Michael Allen, Associate Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology and Dean of Students at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, and co-author of Reformed Catholicity, Promise of Retrieval for Theology and Biblical Interpretation. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Allen. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we get into this, I should say that you you are one author of this book. Um, Would you like to say anything about uh, Dr. Swain?
1: Sure. Uh, Like myself, he's a professor at RTS Orlando, having taught here for almost a decade now. Uh, In our systematic theology department, he also serves as our academic dean and uh, has written a number of books on the doctrine of scripture, which is very pertinent uh, to the background of this this volume, and the doctrine of God.
0: Awesome. So most books call for a question like this, uh, especially one that takes to itself the title of Manifesto, which you gentlemen have done. So... Why was this book written, and for whom did y'all write it? We wrote it for our students
1: and for pastors and practitioners who are thoughtfully searching for uh, better rubrics to help govern how they view their church involvements, their ministry frameworks and philosophies, even their theological systems. Uh, We wrote it because there's a number of movements uh, that we can trace and track in the contemporary milieu, uh particularly in the last 25 years or so, but even going back beyond that 50 or 60 years. Uh, looking back to the past, uh, believing that the modern era with its focus on the now and uh, its chronological snobbery, to use Lewis's great phrase, Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that it's missing something. And a number of these different movements or trends have cropped up in different ecclesiological circles, um, in many cases close to our ecclesiastical or church home, uh, sort of the Reformed world. But there's been rather little reflection on how to thoughtfully and coherently make sense of the past for the sake of present faithfulness and future effectiveness. And this book's meant to do that, to reflect thoughtfully and and in a very specific way theologically on how church tradition or the wholeness of the church, the witness of the communion of the saints uh, around the globe and through the centuries, how that informs uh, our thought today where we are. And uh, so Reformed Catholicity is meant not to address every question about theological method or Uh, ministry philosophy, but to pointedly address and uh, suggest a way forward regarding how retrieval is going to inform that work, whatever it is we do.
0: Excellent. This is a pretty, uh, this is a very focused book. Uh, I like the word, I like the word manifesto for it because it felt very much as if it was trying to Set an agenda and then say, okay, now that this agenda is set, other scholars, other readers, go forth and (laughs) make this work out in practice. Um, But before we get into the steps of your manifesto and and how you would uh, have us go forth and go forth and act, um, a good chunk of the introduction is spent in tracing what you say are these larger... um, this this larger trend that's in theology of returning to sources. So this this sounds like a very Renaissance ad fontes kind of thing. So how is that being heated in contemporary theology?
1: Sure, it takes different forms, and some would be more academic, some would be uh, more liturgical. For example. Fifty, sixty 60 years ago in the Roman Catholic world, uh, the new theology, La Nouveau Theologie, movement began and had wide influence leading up to and, and through the Second Vatican Council and has really shaped uh, the developments within the Roman Catholic world. Mm. At the same time, even in what we might call Protestant, liberal, or mainline circles, a number of scholars have shown an interest in returning to the traditions of early classical orthodoxy. You can uh, read the recent memoirs of of Tom Oden to see something along those lines, or look at the projects of Don Blesch as well as an example of that. So there's academic retrieval that's been playing out in Roman Catholic as well as Protestant circles. Mm. In liturgical circles, though, you could look uh, to Bob Weber and uh, the ancient future movement that he has Uh, led for 30 some odd years now um, and that continues after his passing or to other movements uh, the modern hymns movement Mm. uh, perhaps you know figureheaded by the gettys and stuart townsend uh the ruf movement where ancient or classical hymns are being reset uh being retrieved in a new and fresh way Uh, to mark worship and liturgy today. Um, Those are just a few key well-known examples, uh, but I think they show that there's a a broad concern to learn from the past for the sake of doing faithful uh, theology, worship, and ministry today. And and that spurred the question for us, how do you do that faithfully? How do you do that in a way that honors biblical authority? Uh, How do you do that in a way that respectfully uh, and wisely gleans from the past without falling prey to bad custom uh, or falling into uh, traditionalism in a bad way uh, those are the kinds of questions we want to deal with in this book because we we take those movements and those trends very seriously.
0: Well I can tell that you could you take them seriously, but I also appreciate that you take it um, positively in a sense I mean you you do speak of uh, the dangers of traditionalism and things like that, but you also, I think, make uh, a pretty positive case for the value of tradition um, in connection to the life of the church. Um, n- not only in the ways we read out the Bible read the Bible, but also the ways we live it out. Um, in your f- first chapters, uh, in particular, you make this case for. I I would say it as tradition, as a a kind of divine institution. So how is the school's function as uh, the school of Christ, is your phrase? Uh, How is that function grounded in theology? How do you support that on a more firm basis than just tradition itself?
1: Sure. I think that's important. I mean, it's not enough as a theologian or a Christian to say, we can't get away from tradition, which mm-hmm. is sociologically or anthropologically true. I mean, even the No Creed But the Bible folks are their own tradition, ironically enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we want to argue not just that tradition's unavoidable, but that a particular sort of tradition is divinely instituted and divinely provided for us by the Spirit of Christ. So we want to relate Church tradition of an Orthodox tradition. Uh, Sort uh, faith and practices that have been passed down, a uh, good deposit given and guarded by the saints through the centuries. We want to track that all the way back into the very trinitarian life of God. And so the first chapter is trying to describe the existence of tradition as an act of God first and foremost. It, it winds up involving not just human creatures but even their habits. Uh, their practices, very concrete characteristics and actions. But first and foremost, it's a gift. And we want to highlight the ways in which the Triune God, through His Son, the Great Shepherd of the Sheep, and His Holy Spirit, the one who indwells us, empowers us, leads and prompts us by the Word, um, how this God actually gives birth to and sustains tradition. And so it's meant to be a Trinitarian lens for looking at uh, the history of the Church and the ongoing authority structures of the Church. Um, we, of course, want to present this in a way that's marked by the uh, Protestant convictions of Solus Christus, Christ alone, and Sola Grazia, grace alone, that... Uh, Human tradition is always going to be marred by sin, and that human authorities never eclipse or can be identified with Christ and his authority. But we nonetheless want to honor the fact that it's Christ, the same Christ who dies in our place and acts in our stead, who also invites humans to participate in his ministry and call certain humans to be leaders and authorities uh, in that exercise. And so to honor Christ and to center the church upon him, we we have to listen to how he has laid out the constitution for his church and how he's given gifts to strengthen it, as Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. So, it's those commitments, that Trinitarian focus on tradition that we try to honor in Chapter One, and that really serve as sort of the superstructure or foundation for the whole volume.
0: Yeah, I really appreciated the way that you tied uh, the the substructure, the of the of the authority, um, the the commissioned authority of the Church in in teaching um, to to the spirit's mission, uh, not only the spirit's mission, but the spirit's uh, processions, um, that, or procession that the the spirit, the Holy spirit in himself, you know, in God in say, um, is reflected in, in the way that the spirit works in the church, that there's a parallel between, between Mm -hmm. those two. I thought that was really useful.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot we can learn as we think about the promise of Jesus that uh, he'll bestow upon us the spirit of truth, that it's better for us that he go for a season, mm-hmm. and that though we lament and it's appropriate that we fast now and mourn his absence, it's nonetheless better that we have the Holy Spirit. and. That means, I think, on the one hand, that we have to realize we don't have our infallible Great Shepherd of the Sheep literally standing in front of us in Sunday worship. Jesus isn't with me face to face, and I, I lament that, and I have to deal with the limits and the fallibility of the, the Church leadership and the Church tradition that I do have. It's, it's not perfect. But nonetheless, it's better, because it is sustained by the Spirit. It's empowered by Him. It, it points back to Christ. And uh, so that's a promise that we want to point people to, the fact that the gospel uh, doesn't simply speak of what God did in the first century alone, but also the good news that God continues to uh, connect that remarkable singular work of Christ to people through the ages, and that he uses his people as his instrument to that end, that uh, there's gospel for the present tense as well. Uh, and that it takes the form of the reconciling work of the church, of the witness of the saints, and of the exercise of pastoral authority uh, that's provided for by Christ himself.
0: Excellent. So if tradition in this sense can be Protestant, and in making it Protestant, you you anchored it in sola gratia, recognition of human, of human fault and the need for grace— and then Solo Christus, no one is standing where Christ stands, but we are his ministers. Um, how can Sola Scriptura be a Catholic doctrine in that sense?
1: Sure. Well, you know, I think there's two things to keep in mind. The first is that the, the sort of argument that was made by Early reformers, they more often than not, of course, didn't use the slogan sola scriptura, but it's an accurate description of the principle they 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 used and employed the scripture principle of the Lutheran and especially the Reformed uh, Reformation in the 16th century. And the form of the argument more often was than not was uh, that the Roman Church of the late medieval era in particular had added a number of elements to what the Church previously had believed and practiced regarding uh, biblical teaching and its appropriate consequences. And so, you know, the, the early Protestants we want to show, both looking at, uh, we, we describe, you could go to a number of figures, but we pick on Martin Boetzer as a key figure here, and uh, look at his remarkable text on the Kingdom of Christ. Um, And then we also survey the early reform Confessions. Uh, They're very clear that they believe that sola scriptura is a Catholic doctrine, Mm. that it's what was held to by the earlier Church. And Calvin makes a big point of this in his Institutes, of course, uh, pointedly in his dedicatory epistle. Um, He points out that he he could show much more comprehensively than he even does uh, that he has the authorities of the fathers on his side, over and against uh, the Roman Church on the one hand, or the radical Anabaptists on the other. And so in one sense, we simply want to say Sola Scriptura is Catholic, in that it goes back, it's it's uh, the way in which the Church through the centuries uh, believed itself led by God. Hmm. Um, that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is Uh, that Catholicity is the context within which Sola Scriptura makes sense as a governing rule. Um, There's always a danger that a reform in theology, or any other field for that matter, can cease to be productive but become parasitic. And uh, Sola Scriptura is certainly a slogan or term that in various contexts has become parasitic, where it's uh, sort of treated apart from or removed from its original context. In the early Reformation, they continued to believe and practice what we would refer to as Catholic forms of Christianity. They discipled their children uh, by means of teaching them, you know, the three key elements of the faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, to guide their uh, beliefs about faith, hope, and love. Um, that's, that's Catholic practice, going back to the very earliest uh, of, of Church histories that we have. Um, they continued to uh, order their worship and their liturgy in certain very traditional formats. Um, and sola scriptura was simply meant to govern or uh, reform the way in which those sorts of practices were undertaken— not to remove them, not to reshuffle the deck and begin over as if we're shaking up an Etch-A-Sketch and starting from scratch, <laughs> um, but rather to help us refine and rearticulate what we will do and why we will do it. Um, and uh, too often in the modern era, of course, Sola Scriptura has been severed from that. And it's it's the equivalent of you know every generation starting over in some sort of zero-based budgeting effort to think about the faith and the ministry as if we we don't inherit creeds or practices or liturgical order from those who've gone before us, and only if we've got an explicit verse in scripture will we add something in. Um, you know that, that's just very much not the approach of the reformers. Um, they were about the the process of making sure that their traditions were biblical, uh, but they had a remarkable sense of dependence upon tradition and a belief that the Spirit had inhabited the Church through the centuries. Hmm. And if you actually look at what they did in terms of pastoral care, liturgical leadership, and so forth, it's remarkably Catholic with a small c. Uh, It's remarkably traditional. And uh, you know that that that's something that we need to explore further as a church, as we are enabled to by historical archives as we're led and prompted to uh by wanting to get back into their pastoral imaginations and uh their liturgical worldview to think uh, of ways we can glean from them more fully. Um, we only hint and give certain illustrations at that in this book, thankfully, there are scholars out there doing great work. Uh, who can extend it much further in different case studies?
0: Well, I think in Chapter Four, you start to map out um at least at least some of the process or some of that uh some of the principles by which the church um, the church makes the kinds of traditions that that then ought to be honored by later generations um, often at at least in 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 my life uh this process has been kind of presented to me the 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 process of traditions coming arising Uh, this is this was presented to me as I you know kind of grew up in church as this is the progressive divergence of the church from the the purity of its root or this is how the church retreated from the authority of scripture Um, is there a better way of thinking about that traditioning process
1: you know I think I think there is I I think part of it requires us to think about the root itself. Um, The beginning point normally isn't thought about very clearly. Um, You know, oftentimes I ask my my students uh, if they would love to live in a biblical church or a first century church. More often than not, they think that's good, because whether they're from a restorationist heritage or not, that that just sounds very faithful, doesn't it? Uh, But then you actually go and look at the various epistles throughout the New Testament, and uh, I have very little interest in going and residing in a first century church. Um, You can just read the Corinthian epistles alone, and you see moral and theological and sexual and economic and liturgical Uh, and governmental issues abounding. Mm. And these are the saints, to use Paul's term. Uh, So one only wonders, you know, about uh, the churches of of lesser caliber, as it were. Um, The the churches then were a mixed bag in all sorts of ways. Uh, They were not some pure ideal. Now, biblical teaching, of course, is infallible and inerrant, and describes the church as God desires it to be and provides for, but biblical history, the descriptive work that we see there, not just in the Acts of the Apostles, but also uh, through sort of mirror reading various polemical texts like Galatians or through looking at the exhortations and uh, descriptive um, uh, work from, say, the Apostle Paul or the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, Uh, describe the root of the Church in very mixed terms, right? Mm. Um, And that shouldn't surprise us if we're Protestants, Uh, the notion that uh, God actually redeems the ungodly, God justifies the ungodly, and that God's about the task of sanctifying us, but we're not yet to glory. And amazingly, the Church fits that picture, Mm. both then and now. Um, So, you know, I think a big part of how we have to approach it is to have realistic expectations that are framed by the nature and promise of the gospel, rather than uh, by some simple binaries of a political or cultural approach that say something's either bad or good, something's either uh, true or false. And, you know, the The description of the Church is that it's a mixed bag, that it's full of sinners, but it's confronted and it's upheld by the promise of God. Um, That it's led by flawed individuals, but that it is sustained uh, and guarded, ultimately, uh, by the great shepherd of the sheep, who will not allow the gates of hell to prevail. And that means that as as we interact with the Church, whether now or through the centuries, we've got to do so by faith. It requires trust. Uh, it's not empirically obvious in every case that the Church uh, is winning <laughs> or is fated to win. There are seasons where times are dark, no doubt. Uh, and so it it's not for nothing that in the Creed, Calvin remarkably points this out, I think, in a poignant and powerful way, a way that this will sustain you when you're in a season of disillusionment. He says, we're called to confess, I believe the Holy Catholic Church. He doesn't say we are called to say, I see the Holy Catholic Church, or (laughs) I simply know. It requires a statement of belief. Um, He points out we don't profess that we believe in the Church as we believe in the triune God. There's a category distinction. We lay our trust ultimately upon God, and we cast ourselves upon Him. But we do believe the Church. Um, We hope through the Church. Um, We, uh, you know, entrust ourselves and our future to the care and nurture, the admonition of the Church. And uh, it seems to me that kind of posture is terribly important to keep the eyes of faith and not just the eyes of empiricism as we look at Church history.
0: Mm. That's excellent. If I can dig into one little detail in this chapter... Um, on page 87, uh, 87, you quote, uh, Carl Broughton, I believe is how you would say his name. Yes. Uh, on the reversed order between, the reverse sequence between the order of being, the order of Cindy, and the order of knowing, the order, uh, the order of cognoscendi, um... Is this uh, – could could this be what Augustine was getting at when he said that he wouldn't have believed the, ch- the gospel if he hadn't first believed the church, something like that?
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do think that Augustine there is getting at what we'd call the epistemological order, the order of knowing. Uh, I don't think in that context when he's addressing it, he's pointing out the distinction or that there's a parallel statement about the order of being there, Uh, though you can get that elsewhere in the Augustinian corpus, but, you know, for example, when he's addressing uh, some of the Donatist issues in his homilies on the first epistle of John. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's right. I think as we're appropriating his his statement there that can sometimes shock people uh, and, you know, suggest, for example, that his views on canon and church uh, are going to be very uh, problematic for, say, a Protestant. I think we say no. Augustine's describing the way of discipleship. You know, you can invite uh, Christians of various sorts, those who are like me, uh, incapable of remembering a time when they didn't trust Christ because they were, from the earliest of days, uh, raised in the bosom of the church, Uh, Versus those who've had remarkable later-in-life conversions, you know, reading the Bible in the hotel room on a trip late at night uh, and suddenly being led to faith. And whether it's a community of Christians who at home and, and at the local congregational level are nurturing someone like me, or it's simply a bunch of anonymous translators the person doesn't know and a bunch of generous Gideons who provided the Bible for the hotel room. The Church has discipled the person unto mm. salvation, and no one hears the Gospel without that kind of witness. And I think that's Augustine's basic point, that uh, in the order of individual knowing – the Church plays this remarkable role by God's grace. God's free, of course, to act otherwise. You know, you think of the Old Testament. um, God can speak through a barnyard animal, right? Mm. Um, And yet, if we want to hear from God and we want to learn uh, more regarding His character, we're wise to turn to the Church's testimony as it points us to His Word, rather than to go out to the pig pen. and, uh, you know, that's, that's Augustine's concern. And I think in our day and age, particularly when the importance, the significance of the community of faith uh, is so marginalized for a whole slew of consumeristic and technological reasons, um, uh, this is just a terribly important thing to think about, the way in which God's promise and God's action Uh, Is pledged to sit and rest upon, to dwell richly upon the life of the congregation. Mm.
0: I found that really helpful because I I, I had wrestled with that particular statement uh, from Augustine as well as as well as Wycliffe did, as Luther did. That's Uh, right, yeah. And on reading this chapter, uh, it it made me recognize. I guess, in a way that I hadn't before, the danger that donatism, po- the temptation of donatism poses in its promise that we can reba- reboot back to a purity, because in 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 attempting to reboot, they're basically saying, "Well, the gospel was gone for a while, and Jesus' promise failed."
1: Right. Well, yeah, I, you get an example of that just to point to another text in in the scriptures. Uh, something that that never ceases to fail me is how significant every Christian, especially every pastor who has to go comfort people who are hurting, how significant we view the promises at the end of Romans 8 are. Neither death nor life uh, will separate us from the love of God in Christ. And and we cherish those words, and we take those words to hospital bedsides and to graveyards. Um, We use those words in the most difficult and dire circumstances but paul himself presses behind that you know god's offered these promises to individuals for thorny and difficult times um, but they're only as good as god's ability to pull through in his promises and paul right at the beginning of chapter nine the very next few verses asks if the word of god has failed Mm. in god's faithfulness to israel and he of course has to plunge into the next three chapters romans 9 to 11 to show that the word of god hasn't failed Um, that God has done and delivered exactly what He said He would. Um, But it just goes to show that past faithfulness on God's part is absolutely essential if we're to sustain faith today. Um, And and by extension, we could say it's a big problem if there hasn't been a real church for hundreds of years, Um, because God has promised there would be. So you can't just have faith 1,500 years or 2,000 years after the time of Jesus and believe there's been sort of a a silent phase where God hasn't sustained a faithful people. Uh, That would fall prey to the same logic as if Paul said, well, here are these great promises, and then he had to admit that God had failed to deliver on his prior promise to Israel. It, It would show God to be either incapable or unwilling of pulling through on his word and paul realizes that and he describes the faithfulness of god in sometimes surprising but nonetheless legitimate powerful beautiful ways Mm. and i think as we look back at church history we need to have eyes that are similar that sees god's faithfulness in surprising sometimes remarkable but nonetheless real powerful beautiful ways
0: excellent well let's let's get practical with this because this isn't just uh, about giving us a new vision of the past. It's about helping us come into what we need to be doing now uh, in particular of reading scripture. So if we have this vision of, of, of a church that God has upheld by his faithfulness um, in doing its task for which it was commissioned and by which, Uh, By the Holy Spirit, it was empowered to pursue. What does it look like for us now to read Scripture along with that community of faith by the rule of faith? Sure.
1: Well, there are different degrees of specificity. I think it uh, is going to shape the way in which we view our individual responsibility related to a corporate responsibility and authority. Mm -hmm. I'm not a Lone Ranger reader, even as a seminary professor, Um, nor should any layman or laywoman uh, believe that they're a Lone Ranger reader uh, in their prayer closet, as it were. Uh, There's a corporate responsibility as we study Scripture. Uh, It's got even more specific uh, implications for how we think about theological education. all of us, I think, intuitively can start to affirm that there are traditions that shape education. I mean, it's not for nothing that when you hand a new convert a Bible, you typically say, please read Mark or John, rather than suggesting a beeline to Lamentations or to, you know, <laughs> the revelation given to John. Um, those are traditions for finding a way in, uh, sort of an on ramp into the Bible. Um, They're they're hermeneutical moves that have been uh, thought through and proven over the centuries to be helpful. Um, There's more specific hermeneutical wisdom, though, regarding discipleship. Um, I think there's something remarkable to the systemic schooling of Christians that uh, marked the church for hundreds of years before the Reformation and afterward as well hmm. in wanting to school Christians regarding the creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. The idea that our belief, our hope, our aspiration, what we pray for, as well as our ethic, all need to be disciplined because we're all sinners and we'll all skew each of those facets uh, or callings, our faith, our hope, and our love, uh, apart from Uh, the discipline of God's Word as it's conveyed to us through those instruments. Um, So, you know, very practical things like that, how you construe a a discipleship program, um, it seems to me are are terribly important, uh, just shaping sort of the basics of the faith and understanding a, a canonical biblical theology and how it affects who you are and what you do.
0: You mention faith, hope, and love, which is in the canon, and you mention the Ten Commandments, also in the canon, but you say that creeds should also be shaping discipleship. Now, in my church background, I've usually, but not always, but I've usually attended churches that have a very independent congregational bent, and usually creeds are not held up as very useful in those kinds of contexts. So how would you respond to a pastor from that sort of a church who says that all your points about us not reading in a closet, we're reading in a community, and we're reading by um, doctrinal standards that we're taught, and they, they teach us how to read Scripture rightly. Um, but what can creeds and confessions do that my congregation's doctrinal statement can't?
1: Yeah, Um you know, I, I think there's a basic point and then a more specific point. Uh, you know, the basic point is that spirits are found in the Bible. Um, you know, whether it's Deuteronomy 6, which is very short, or Deuteronomy 26, 5 and following, uh, regarding the, the, the Pentateuchal history of Israel up to that point, which is a bit longer, um, or at some of the Psalms recounting the works of D- God and the mighty deeds of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's eventually in the Pauline epistles, particularly the pastoral epistles, where Paul is, uh, instructing Timothy regarding the ongoing organizational, uh, framework within which congregations are going to function, where, you know, in 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 15, he's describing the, the pattern that has been handed down, a pattern of sound words, Mm. Uh, and he describes a good deposit. And that terminology there is not describing the canon of Holy Scripture. Um, It's rather the understanding of the Church, the way in which they understand and interpret it in a Christian way, in a way that centers upon Jesus Christ as uh, the fullness of God's grace for us. Um, That's being commended as something that's to be passed on, that's to be guarded, uh, as a means by which the Spirit is going to sustain the Church and keep what God has given to Christ. Um, so in a whole slew of ways, That the most basic thing we've got to say is, creeds are divinely instituted um, and called for. Uh, those are commandments. Guard the good deposit. Um, you know, Paul there is commanding me just as much as when he tells me not to go, you know, sacrifice a lamb in worship this weekend or to go uh, partake of idol meat in the temple. Um, And so I'm duty-bound to guard that good deposit and to pass on the pattern of sound words. Um, More specifically, though, you know, why not just a congregational confession of faith? Why one uh, that is held to by a denomination, by a, a broader communion of churches Uh, such as, say, the the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed. Uh, I think a a key thing that we see here is that in the Bible there are facets of ecclesial authority. Um, The local, the regional, the universal. You see that in the interaction for example in Acts 15. Um, There are local representatives, but there's also a broader uh, summit, as it were, or assembly of leaders Um, And the New Testament depicts all those levels functioning together, and there's a basic principle, I think, uh, that underlies that. The notion that, um, you know, any one person isn't going to see the whole on their own apart from the testimony of others, just a a, a basic anthropological principle uh, from our finitude. Mm. And uh, you know, I've, I've never been in a women's restroom. (laughs) <laughs> um and I can't tell you what goes on there. I can't tell you, um, you know, any number of things about that. And yet, uh, it's entirely appropriate uh, for me to believe that it exists, uh, that having it be clean and functional is a good and valuable thing, and thus that there are rules and protocols uh, for how a janitorial crew, for how, uh, an architectural design is going to best serve other people. Um, my personal experience of something is not uh, something that you know provides for every situation. I'm a male, and therefore you know, a whole slew of experiences won't ever personally impinge upon me. Um, and yet, the church is wider, right? Mm-hmm. Half the church, give or take, is female. Uh, half the church. Uh, is going to have certain experiences that I'm, by definition, not going to have. And that's just one example of countless others you could give. Um, and so there's something to admitting our finitude and asking, in this case, what is it that the broader Church has discerned regarding the nature of biblical teaching? Um, not just what has our particular community, small or large, in this city or town or neighborhood seen as important. Um, I'm I'm just a big believer in C.S. Lewis's uh, remarks that he, he gives so powerfully in his uh, prefatory address to Athanasius's On the Incarnation, the reprint of that volume, where he talks about and commends the value of reading old books. Mm. And he says, you ought to read more old books than new books precisely because you won't be able to see the limits of the new books, because you live in the world of the new books. And so you need to encounter the old ones, not because they're necessarily better, but because they're different, mm-hmm. and because by being uh, confronted with that, you will have new eyes to read the new the the you know what to you would be the familiar um, I think we are called to listen to those who've gone before us and who worship God and receive grace from him alongside or around us elsewhere in the world. And the the beauty of those basic creeds and of those enduring Orthodox statements of faith is that so often they recenter us, they recalibrate us away from some of the foibles and fixations of our given culture. Mm. Um, We can be so startled by the tyranny of the urgent and by some of the questions of our day that we forget you know what humans have struggled with and rejoiced in through the ages and so you know we want to honor the fact that christ has founded a church we want to honor the fact that as ephesians 4 1 to 6 describes you know there's one lord one faith one baptism we want to reflect on that commonality that wholeness that catholicity with a small c and uh to that end, um, we want to view ourselves as being Christians, uh, not just members of a particular congregation, but members of one Christ united to the same Lord. Mm. Um, and we want to hear how he has been, uh, believed in and worshiped through the centuries by men and women, often in circumstances remarkably different from ours.
0: Excellent. And if, If you hadn't brought in C.S. Lewis on the reading of old books, I would have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) Well, we need to, I guess, be circling towards the end. But before we do, um, you conclude the book with a defense of proof texts, which um, in a way is an even gutsier move than talking reform types into liking tradition. So, why are proof texts defensible and not just shabby hermeneutics? Sure. You know, I, I
1: think there's a couple um, basic observations we can make that hopefully prompt a rethink about the term proof texts. The first is most people who bash proof texts, that is, parenthetical references to scripture verses in an argument, Uh, even themselves wind up, uh, lining up behind and celebrating works, uh, perhaps not, perhaps not works of systematic theologians, but works of biblical scholars that extensively employ, wait for it, proof texts. (laughs) Uh, you can't hardly pick up any monograph, uh, even a technical monograph on older New Testament studies today. Uh, models of exceptional and deep learning, without encountering hundreds of proof texts. Uh, it's simply an efficient means of, of cross-reference in a, even a work of biblical studies. Um, secondly, most of the more particular criticisms of proof texts that are offered today Uh, that they're not keen on contextually sensitive reading, that they pull things out of their original context, that they don't follow the appropriate uh, steps of a historical critical or historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture, those sorts of arguments, Um, they could all in various ways be applied to proof texts within the Bible, to apostolic hermeneutics looking back at the Old Testament, or even... Uh, to interpretation of the Old Testament by later Old Testament authors. Mm. And it strikes uh, the two of us as as we look at matters hermeneutically that any time you have a hermeneutic that rules out of court the practice of God's inspired prophets and apostles, you've got a hermeneutical problem. And it's not them, it's you. Mm. Um, that being the case, what's going on? Uh, when one of the evangelists or apostles or even one of the earlier prophets uh, cites sort of on the shorthand an earlier text? Or what's going on when a Calvin or a Thomas uh, parenthetically references a scriptural passage? Or, let's be honest, what's going on when a contemporary biblical scholar does so in a technical monograph? It's simply a shorthand cross-reference so that you're alerted to what else you need to read and what you need to compare. Mm. And I'll be the first to admit there are bad examples of that and there are inappropriate uses of that, but it's not the literary device that's the problem. It's the person making use of it. And I'll be honest just as well, it's just as often misused in works by biblical scholars where they're doing careful Greek and Hebrew exegesis as it is in works found and written by systematic theologians, whether of today or of yesteryear. Um, I'm a strong proponent that systematic theology needs to be a lot more tethered to careful exegesis. Um, It's one of my deepest passions and thankfully marked my education that I saw theologians like Henri Blochet during my doctoral study who were just painstakingly careful about honoring the details of the biblical text. Um, I'm with the critics of proof texting 100% on that, but I think it's terribly naive to believe that it's the literary uh, sort of marker of a parenthetical proof text that signals whether or not one's being faithful, contextual, and thoughtful in exegening something, whether it's the Bible or a later text. Hmm. Um, We can can be bad interpreters and not use such literary signs, or we can be good interpreters and make use of them well. Um, In that chapter, we point to Thomas and then to Calvin as two examples who used what we'd call proof texts or parenthetical references, and they did so simply to point out Not that they'd pulled out a couple words or even just a a single line from a text, but rather that they wanted the reader to go look at either their commentary or at the standard commentary tradition on a passage. They were well aware, as people whose day job was to lecture on the Bible, of the detail and of the arguments that uh, were in play regarding biblical interpretation of different passages. And so they're not simply signaling that you go look at the Bible. They're signaling that you need to go look at their exposition of the Bible on that point. And uh, we think that's a commendable uh, approach and practice, that theologians ought to be uh, more frequently uh, citing biblical texts that uh, govern and generate their reflection, and that they need to be more frequently uh, citing uh, the interpretation and the patterns of exegesis that have marked the Church's reflection and reception of those passages. Um, and that's precisely what we see in the case of both Thomas and of Calvin. Um, so proof texts uh, may be used as a cover for bad exegesis, no doubt, Uh, But I want to suggest, actually, if used thoughtfully, if used with some hard work and some self-aware, intentional reflection, they can be a remarkable sign and signal of cross-disciplinary conversation that we absolutely need to encourage today. Uh, Too often, biblical studies monographs are written with very little um, awareness of or concern for uh, the history of doctrine and systematic implications, and just as just as common, uh, systematic texts are written without much you know personal engagement in exegetical detail. and so anything we can do to bring scripture and doctrine back together in the academy and in the church is a good thing. and uh, proof texts are one literary tool to that end to help Uh, sort of provide for cross-references, so that people can find their way from uh, the one discipline unto the other.
0: Mm. Well, I know my uh, my area of study is medieval literature, so I'm coming at it from from that angle, but I still have to be acquainted with medieval theology and patristic theology from various venues, just so I know what I'm reading in a literary text, and for the longest time, I thought that Thomas's inter, uh, fictional interlocutors in the sumo were kind of goofy because um, they just sort of throw a verse out there and say, there's my argument. And then I realized, you know, they're supposed to be hyperlinks, <laughs> right? so to yeah, speak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah, go look at the katina and so forth. Right.
0: Right. right. And, yeah, so, yeah, the, the Summa can sound really bizarre if you don't recognize that each of those each of those little moments is actually a chance to expand the conversation in a direction not just say and this verse is meant to stand on its own naked so to speak right well i've had the helm up to this point so i'd like to turn it over to you for a second we like to let our guests on this podcast decide how the conversation ends So is there anything that you'd like to bring into this discussion that we haven't surfaced already, or something that we've touched on that you'd like to unpack more?
1: Uh, Sure. I'd I'd like to point to where the book ends, the afterword, which Mm -hmm. is an extensive afterword uh, by a dear friend, Todd Billings, who's a a professor of theology at Western Seminary up in Chile, Holland, Michigan. Um, (laughs) And Just a a dear friend and brother in Christ, Um, he wrote this piece uh, a couple of years ago now, and uh, it in many ways connects our vision for Reformed Catholicity to congregational life uh, by way of uh, reflecting on how the individualism and the uh, consumerism of uh, what Christian Smith's called moral therapeutic deism, sort of the functional theology of uh young persons in our country today. Um how that really is countered by a belief that we are not our own, as the Heidelberg Catechism Question One puts it, but we belong uh to God in Christ. And in life and in death, in body and in soul we're his. And Christ provides for those who are his. And the way in which he provides is through the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord that we find uh in particular uh, amidst the body of saints, the the communion of saints to which he's entrusted us, and so um, Todd really connects this to how ministry is going to be practiced in the early twenty first century. And he he compares what we'd call sort of a, an ultra modern seeker sensitive approach uh, with a reformed Catholic approach, and and both are just illustrations or case studies. A number of very different looking models could. Be brought in on either side. Um, But I hope what's conveyed by that is that in at least one instance you've got a great symbol that drawing on the past and seeking to be faithful to uh, the faith and practice of the past, the rule of faith and the rule of love, um, can actually uh, confront and communicate to a very fresh, lively, changing 21st century context uh, without in any way capitulating to the consumerism, the individualism, uh, the itching of the ears uh, that Paul talks about. Um, and so I hope that, if nothing else, that afterward uh, suggests the kind of ministerial imagination we hope this this book uh, calls for, uh, that retrieval... Um, is meant to help fund renewal. We don't want to repristinate or return to the past. We want to retrieve the past for the sake of renewing the church for today and tomorrow. And, um, you know, in a real sense, we see great examples of this uh, in areas of retrieval that aren't specifically academic. So, I mean, the modern hymns movement is a remarkable example here. Of drawing on liturgical resources um, that are being rekeyed, rearranged, reformed in many ways to communicate musically uh, to a new time and in a new context, and yet to bring to bear on that the ancient, beautiful, classical Christian teachings of who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus. And that's just a remarkable illustration of what we hope to see, not just musically or even liturgically, uh, but in terms of how we think about polity and governance, Mm. of Scripture and exegesis, of uh, doctrine and dogmatics, of missions and evangelism, of apologetics and so forth. And, uh, you know, we want to help the Church, and we want to see the Church, Um, have a renewed vision or imagination for how the past can speak into and provide wisdom for the present.
0: Excellent. That's really excellent. I teach a church history Sunday school class um, at my church, and one of the things I'll sometimes uh, tell the folks in my class is that church history is like your grandmother's attic full of... Amazing things that you've inherited, but if you never bother to look, um, you won't realize what you have. And uh, I, I feel like this book is, uh, one of the things this book is in- encouraging us to do is is, is go in the attic. <laughs> Open the boxes, because there's, there's uh, good things for us to, to learn from that.
1: Yeah, I I, I certainly hope that that people find, and I find as one who teaches church history to seminarians, uh, that it's both comforting and exhilarating as they realize what's actually back there, and the ways it can speak into uh, the needs of their own souls, as well as the callings of their future ministries.
0: Excellent. Well, I want to thank you for coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, Dr. Allen, It's been a a fun conversation for me, and I hope an enjoyable one for our listeners to hear as well.
1: Uh, It's my privilege. Thanks so much for having me, David.
0: Well, listeners, uh, this has been an episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. Uh, I've been your host, David Grubbs, and we've been speaking to Dr. Michael Allen about Reformed Catholicity, the promise of retrieval for theology and biblical interpretation Uh, authored by him, Michael Allen, and Scott R. Swain, and published by Baker Academic. If you'd like to ask any questions or leave any comments uh, about the episode, you can do that on the show notes when they post on our blog, uh, christianhumanist.org. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.